and welcome to Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tannen. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we're hoping to explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. We compare and contrast our experiences from the military and business world, try and work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. So, Gareth, last time we spoke, we talked about BHAGs and 3HAGs. And actually, I think, Gareth, you came up with a fantastic example of a BHAG. Uh, was I think we gave a couple which was sort of almost a bit cliched. There was the SpaceX going to to Mars, and you'd say, "Oh well, is that really a BHAG I care about?" The other one I think we gave was, um, you know, the Americans at the Second World War becoming a, a, a the, the primary fighting force. But you came up with a brilliant one because it's particularly relevant, particularly current. And for me, what I loved about it was there was this sense of ambition where if you'd have said it three or four years ago, people would have looked to you and said, that's insane. You're, a, why would you do this? And B, you would never do this. So can you just give us a minute or two on your brilliant BHAG example, Gareth? Absolutely. So you put me on the spot a little bit and said, come up with a military BHAG for, for the British Army. And I sort of tried to scribble something down while we were while we were chatting and didn't really come up with anything particularly hairy or audacious but I was thinking about it and that led on to our conversation as you said after we stopped recording yesterday about the Estonians and the Estonian military I think have quite a good BHAG but I think it links to a wider Estonian government BHAG writ large so At the end of the Cold War, when the Berlin Wall came down, Estonia and Belarus were similar-sized populations, very similar-sized GDP, both not in great shape, having come out of uh, from behind the Iron Curtain. And it's really interesting because there's this comparison. And Estonia sort of took a while to sort of find its feet, but effectively opened itself up to the West and said, What is it we're going to be able to offer? On paper, Belarus has more natural resources because it's a bigger geographic country. And so the Estonians sort of looked at what they could do and they they said, right, we are going to be the digital leaders of the world. And their military did something very similar. So they said, we live on the border with, with Russia as this growing growing threat of which we are never going to be able to compete and we're always going to be in the shadow of the big big russian brother what can we do that's different and so they set out to be the the nato leaders in cyber operations knowing that if they could do that they would be indispensable and therefore they wouldn't need to compete from a hard power perspective with Russia because they would always be indispensable to NATO. So both the Estonian military and Estonia writ large as a country have been forging ahead with becoming the leaders of digital innovation. Uh, And I think they've achieved it. They are, by almost every metric, Forging ahead is one of the fastest growing economies in the world. They've got the highest levels of digital literacy. 
Um, their military cyber skills are up there with some of the best, you know, and, and most well-funded nations in the world. Um, and they have made themselves both indispensable and fully aligned with what they saw as their strategic partners. So I think that is absolutely a BHAG. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was such a really good example because it, it contained that ambition we talked about. It contained the element of, as you say, no one would have imagined. In fact, I, I would imagine if the moment the Estonians said we're going to do this, we don't even know how we're going to do this. And yet it's transformational in terms of, as you've explained, allowing a relatively modestly sized country to punch far above their weight and have a very different geopolitical impact. So thank you for that, because I, I wanted to talk about that one. I thought that was really, really good. But I'm, I'm now going to do something seamless and bring us back to today's. Someone somewhere in the Estonian government or the Estonian military made a decision about what it was that they were going to be in the future. And so today's episode is all about decision making and the factors that affect decision making. And I think you'll find this is so this this was a topic that, 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 that Gareth, I know you, you wanted to talk about this one. I suspect it's going to be another one of these ones where we poke around at it. And we maybe give some of our own examples and also try and get our, you know, there's the theory of it, but then there's the practical what we do. So uh, let, let's turn that back. Gareth, decision making and the factors that affect decision making, you know, maybe what is that? What is decision making? What does it mean? Maybe why is it important? That's maybe a good place to start. So decision making is exactly what we what we all think it is. It is taking information and choice and then choosing how to move forward from that position so that might be a, an individual making a decision about what to do and there's there's some really interesting sort of statistics about how many decisions we make as individuals every day but it's it's in the tens of thousands and it depends on how you define what is an individual decision but of course we make decisions every day about whether we're going to ignore the alarm clock for five minutes whether we're going to have cornflakes or rice krispies for breakfast or you know lots and lots of little decisions but collectively we make decisions as organizations we talked a lot on this podcast about trying to link activity to strategy and of course to do that you have to align your operations you have to do things and therefore you have to make decisions about how you want to do things about how you want to use your capability and then more and more we're starting to see the relationship between machines that make decisions so logical digital decisions in computing and humans and we've just uh, very recently seen the launch of yet another open ai technology chat gtp4 which is starting to see the collaboration between people and machines making human machine team decisions so it stretches from individuals all the way across the organization my, my sort of my gears are already turning on this one and I, I i think i already know the answer to my question but there is this sense that as you say we make so many decisions every day how much of this is instinctive versus how much of this can be trained i don't know maybe i'm getting ahead of myself here but there's i i do when when you phrase it like that which is everything from the alarm clock through to hiring through to new product decisions through to how what's the next 
artillery piece we're going to get for ourselves. The fact that we make so many of these, I don't, I don't think I can remember a time when I said, oh, wait a minute, there's a decision here. I now need to stop and apply a framework to think about the decision. So how much is instinctive? How much of it is heuristics or trained? And how much is in between? Yeah, there's two, there's two things to unpack there. One is we've talked previously, of course, about heuristics and bias. We did a whole episode on it. Um, and there is an awful lot that happens in our system one thinking that we just let our subconscious do. So we might get up and have cornflakes and not even recognize that we chose to do that. There is also the added ambiguity, I, I suspect, of multiple decisions resulting in outcomes. And unless you sit down and start to analyze where those decisions have affected each other, a lot of the time we are making decisions, perhaps as organizations, without definitively recognizing that we are doing it. And I think one of the big problems when you start addressing decision-making as, as an academic discipline is there's this assumption that we're talking about big, deliberate, overtly recognized decisions, where the majority of decisions actually happen as a result of culture and as a result of some of the factors that we're going to talk about as we go through the rest of this session. So that was interesting as you said that, because you said culture makes decisions. What was interesting to me was I was actually thinking almost the opposite, which is decisions make the culture. And I think one of the, maybe it, it almost sort of reinforces the point you've made. We make lots of little decisions and the outcome is almost an emergent decision. That's a bad way of saying it, but we make all these small decisions we don't realize that it actually in effect is us taking a bigger decision. It's the, it's sort of those small decisions that drive culture and all these other things we've talked about when something big and important happens, the way we make a decision is then influenced by all those other little decisions we made and maybe we didn't think about, but I don't know. It's easy for me to be philosophical and sort of go, well, that's interesting. I know this is something that you've spent a lot of time thinking about. So maybe, maybe a, a good way to sort of drag us back on course is how do we make decisions what are the factors that really drive our decision making because i i suspect there's a there's a good way of talking about that and breaking that down i think firstly we need to recognize there are there are two aspects to decision making the first is we understand the context within which we're making decisions we understand that a decision needs to be made consciously or, or subconsciously and so there are what I call the input factors into decisions, which is how we understand the environment we're in and the choice that we have to make or choices we have to make. And then there are the influence factors that affect the way we make those choices. So I've kind of broken it down. So the first three factors are those input factors. And those are data, information, and intelligence and when i say intelligence i mean that from the military sort of definition of the word rather than cognitive ability but, we'll, we'll come on to that but presumably just as much military business as in intelligence about what's going on in the market what's going on with other people as well uh, yeah absolutely so in, intelligence for me is um information when used 
to make decisions, how it affects decisions. So it's very, very similar to other epistemological models. There's a, there's a quite famous model called the DIKW model, which is data, information, knowledge, wisdom. This is a very, very similar breakdown, but I think slightly simpler because we'll talk about why knowledge and wisdom are slightly different. Data is raw, unprocessed, it's ubiquitous. So data is everywhere and everything. It is signals in the noise of information around us. So it's frequencies of electromagnetic radiation bouncing around that allows us to communicate. It's frequencies of electromagnetic radiation that allow our eyes to see the world around us visually. Um, so data is everywhere. And because it's everywhere, it's useless until we start to isolate it, aggregate the particular aspects of those signals within a context that we understand. So we measure data against a known framework, we aggregate it, and we start to make sense of it. And that is information. So information is data within a given context. Now, that's okay, that's useful. Data is ubiquitous, information is is you know information it tells us something but we need to align that to what we're trying to work out so just having information isn't necessarily useful because it might be erroneous information it might be irrelevant information but what we need to do is isolate the information that is useful to help us make decisions and that is what i would define as intelligence so just just before we go forward you know, we always seem to be having these light bulb moments. You have just described a very, very, a very high profile topic in the world of product today is product data, product analytics, product instrumentation. Yeah. And, and there, this is one of my sort of, whenever I say this out loud, everyone looks a bit unhappy and sort of says, you don't get this, Chris, which is, I believe building this information or or creating the i'm trying to think of what i'm saying the outcome from the data and the information is highly valuable but lots and lots of people get stuck on the data bit or the information bit and i can give you a really i'll give you an example of what i've seen in the past and i'll give you an example of how i try to make a better decision Actually, this is who knew this would, would come together so the first one was there was a a very famous desktop software product that many of you will use on a daily basis that i used to i used to be colleagues with some of these folks and one day they proudly said to me look at this chris and i'm like what's that and they said this is a four gigabyte file which is all about how our customers have been using the product four gigabytes of information. I said, that is fantastic. What did it tell you? Or what are you going to do differently because of it? And he looked at me, he said, don't be silly. How am I supposed to do anything with this? It's four gigabytes worth of information. So I think there was a classic getting data isn't the goal, <laughs> even, even deriving information. And I, I, I wonder whether in this case, when, when I now sort of talk to my own teams the way i organize this to help them make better decisions is what problem are you trying to solve or what question are you trying to answer 
And that in turn will help you understand what data you look for, how you use the data and in turn information. So absolutely. I yeah. You couldn't be you couldn't be more right. So we've done the link from data is raw unprocessed, we aggregate it, we put it in context, we create information. Information when used to support decision making or influence decision making is intelligence. What we need to do is, as you say, turn that on its head and say, what are the decisions I need to make? What questions do I have that need answering in order to move us forward? Therefore, what information do I have to help make that decision, make those decisions, help other people in my organization make those decisions? Where are the gaps in my knowledge? What information do I then need to go and get? And then you say, from that, where are the signals in the data? Where are the signatures that my sensors can go and collect that data from? And too often, we are enamored by this idea of big data. Now, big data is an incredibly powerful tool. But if you don't understand the value of big data, just the idea of more data becomes quite enthralling. And the reality is, if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, adding on more hay isn't going to help you. <laughs> so you should, um, there's a there's a t-shirt. We should come up with a, a range of t-shirts. And if you need to find a needle in a haystack, adding a hay isn't going to work. Yeah. So there, there's, there's two aspects to that. One is, you know, going after omnipotence, collecting as much data as possible so that you will know stuff is a full errand because there will always be more data. It's a chaotic system. There will always be more data than you can cope with. Um, and the second one is you need to be targeted. And there's a chap called Lieutenant General David Deptula, and he's a retired US Air Force general, but he is, he's an expert in the field of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. And he is quoted as saying, and I, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but We've got to be data hunters, not data farmers, in that we've got to align the collection of the information to the questions we have and the decisions that we need to make. Now, having said all of that, of course, that doesn't mean if we've got data that we've collected as a second order of our activities, we should be deleting it, ignoring it. There, there is always value in exploration and exploitation of the data you've got. But we absolutely shouldn't be spending huge amounts of capacity getting as much data as possible because there's a limit to how much we can process. You've, you've. I mean, I, I first of all, I know that's absolutely true, and I, I, uh, in in a past life, touched in this world where there were groups of government organisations collecting lots of data, and they were struggling with this. Getting data is really easy. Understanding what the data means and so yeah. the thing there, but I, I, this is a really good reminder for people listening, which is as with every single topic we talk about, you can easily look at the framework or the list and you can say, well, this is what we need to do. And it's so easy to get lost. And I've literally seen the look in people's faces where if we do this with data, amazing things will happen. So in my world, we have a very common thing. So there's, there's a number of tools out there that will help instrument web applications. Um, you know, something people might understand is Google Analytics, but there's a, there are many companies, but one I'm reasonably familiar with is a company called Pendo. It does a fantastic job. If you wire up your application, 
it can tell you all sorts of interesting things. It can tell you the most trafficked parts of your web application. It can show you where people drop off. It can do all sorts of clever things. But one of the mistakes I've seen people make is if we get a tool like Pendo, we will have all the data. And I've spent many years gently saying to people who are very excited about data, yes, but going back to my point, what are the problems you're trying to solve? L last thing to say on that, and then I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a bit more of a free run, which is this idea of data. Everywhere you look in my world, people get excited about data. I was having dinner with seven other product managers just a few weeks ago. And I said to them, I think people talk a lot about data and very few people really, really do a good job because they're busy. And they all agreed with me and said, actually, it turns out we don't do an awful lot with data. So it's yeah, it's really easy to get caught up in the idea. It's harder than it sounds. Yeah. And, and you're right about different sources of data, of course. We need to really think about our data fusion. And that's a word that gets thrown out as well. But what we mean is, you know, collecting data from different sources and then using those different sources to provide understanding of whatever it is we're trying to understand. And by understanding, what I mean is moving beyond counting things to understand relationships and dependencies and outcomes of things. So understanding and modeling complex systems. And part of this is you know, insight and foresight. So insight is what is happening and why what is happening around me and why is it happening and you can apply this to internal processes in your organization you know big aeronautical engineering companies do a really good job at doing this with understanding what is currently happening to their engineering systems with a whole load of sensors that measure temperature and how many times things rotate and stress loads and all that kind of stuff and they create these big digital twin models that tell them what is going to happen next so insight is what is happening now and why and then foresight is and what is that going to lead to in the future we get a whole episode on wargaming and red teaming what wargaming and red teaming does is it provides a an, a tool for expanding your foresight the what do i think is likely to happen next what will i see happening why are these things going to happen what are the hypotheses I'm coming up with? How will I test them? And doing all of that is really, really difficult and requires a very specific set of skills, as does collecting data, as does analyzing data. So there's currently, I find when I'm talking to businesses, a real tension between the data science, so analytics, statistics, coding, data manipulation, data harmonization, all of those skills, which are very technical and um, very specific. And then the business intelligence world of coming up with hypotheses, developing trends, foresight and insight, the, the balance of connecting the technical data manipulation and understanding with modeling systems, understanding relationships and dependency requires sort of a, a, a translator. It requires an interlocutor. 
And that, I think, is where a lot of businesses get this wrong because they focus on data or, alternatively, they focus on intuition and experience. And what we've got to do is bring these things together so that we're collecting data to reinforce or confirm or deny assumptions and hypotheses, but we're being very deliberative about it. You end up with information overload, data paralysis, and all that all that kind of good stuff, which I'm sure we're going to come on to. It's interesting. Uh, by the way, I, as usual, agree entirely with a the model there. One of the observations I've made over many years is that the, you know, you, you made a very clear distinction between insight, what's happening, and foresight, what will happen. One of the things which is surprising, and it should no longer surprise me, is the majority of businesses I've come across struggle to know what's happening. As an organization yes. increases in size and complexity, never mind what's going to happen, I don't even know what's actually happening now. And so I, I don't, I, that's not that that's an excuse to just look at data and just have the insight piece, but I, I, maybe a different way of saying it is, I suspect many people are still struggling with the insight piece before they can even think about getting to the foresight piece. But, but that certainly doesn't change, as you said, about that fusion of those things. And going back to that practical statement, which is what, what question do you have that you want to answer? That question yeah. could be what's going on in my engine. That question should be what decisions should I be making next in order to achieve these particular goals? Yeah, I, I think you're entirely right. And I think the logic of understanding what is happening, therefore allowing you to then start to work on what might happen next is, is a step that is often misunderstood or, or even just not done. Um, and the other thing we do is we split internal organizational understanding, what is happening within my organization, as almost a separate set of data, a set, separate set of questions a separate set of intelligence to what's happening in the marketplace. And actually, in the, in the military world, we almost do a third set of information uh, and intelligence. So we have internal management, information and data and questions and decisions. Then we have external operating information. And then we have intelligence, which is about the enemy and its secret. And, it's, and the reality is, and the military does this just as much as organizations. You've got to see all of these things as one big connected data system. It's a complex system, but your behavior internally as part of an organization affects other bits of the organization, but it also affects the external environment. And so all of these things are interconnected. I think what we should do is take a break now. And when we come back after the break, we can explore the influence factors on decision-making to start to unpick how we try to make sense of what we do with the intelligence, what we do with the understanding in order to get around some of these problems. Excellent. So we'll see you in a few seconds uh, and we'll come back and um, pick up the influence factors. OK, 
Okay, welcome back. Um, well, I fear that my role here is to stymie us rolling forward because I've got too many questions. We we talked about, we would talk about influence factors and I promise we'll get to that. But at, at, during the break, there was something I was thinking about, which is back in, actually not that far back in history, um, gathering information for the military was a man in a an armored car with a pair of binoculars and says, go find out where the enemy is. And so while that might seem like a lot of information, a relatively limited amount of information. And now I'm very aware right now over the Black Sea, there are, in, there are airplanes which are sucking up radio signals, various other things. It, it occurs to me that the amount of data and by implication information that is coming into the military has grown exponentially and i know ex what exponential means but it almost feels like exponentially doesn't doesn't actually capture how much more information there are um open source pieces of information about individual tanks so gareth in the last let's say 10 years at a super high level how has the military or the militaries of the world tried to cope with this because i think this is a really good parallel with business as it starts to get more signals, how has the military tried to cope with this and has it done it well, poorly? It, I mean, it absolutely is a parallel to, to the business world and, and that's exactly why I work as a consultant because it's a challenge I dealt with in the military and it's a challenge I see the, the parallels with in the, the business world because apart from the content being different and the things you want to achieve being different, the the problem set is exactly the same. It's this used to be quite simple, small amounts of information that you would have to synthesize and aggregate and then make decisions. You know, it has exponentially grown, as you say, into not just massive amounts of data, but the volume, the velocity of that data, variety. the variety of that data. You know, we talk about the Vs of data. I mean, the, there are millions of them now, but yeah, I, I like five. I like velocity, volume, variety, veracity, and validity. So, you know, also coming back to that point about you can collect data for the sake of it. You know, how valid is that data in supporting what you're doing? And that's often more difficult than you would think to be able to identify, and more and more the veracity in a world of deep fakes, in a world of misinformation and malinformation. You know, how do you trust the information and the data that you've got? Um, so, yeah, it's a great question. I think if we go right back and we think about how military intelligence has evolved, it typically started with visual observation, what we would call reconnaissance. Reconnaissance is the ability to go and find things on the battlefield. So that would be somebody crawling around or riding around on a, on a horse looking for the enemy, looking for what's over the other side of the hill. The word surveillance is, is obviously very close to that. And surveillance is watching things. But once you've found them, now we watch them to develop trend over time to begin to understand what they're doing. So we found the enemy. Now we're going to put a observation post in and watch them for several days. And by doing that, we're going to understand their routines and whatever. And, and from that, we can start to make decisions about their vulnerabilities, about when is an appropriate time to attack, what force numbers, all of that kind of stuff. Now, it used to be 
relatively easy to find the enemy and very, very difficult to then have a decisive effect. So if we think about the First World War, the amount of ammunition, the amount of ordnance used per target was phenomenally large because it was really difficult to be accurate. And also, even if you hit the target, they were so well dug in, it was very difficult to actually have an effect. So finding the target was relatively easy. We knew where they were. Actually having an effect on them was really difficult. Well, well, that's flipped over. Over the last 100 years or so of, of mechanization and digitization and industrialization, we've gone to a position now where we can very, very easily put a, a weapon system very accurately at considerable range onto a target. The difficulty is finding the target and knowing what effect to have on the target, whether we should put a missile on it. So uh, we're seeing a lot of this in, in Ukraine at the moment. We're seeing, we saw a lot of it in the Middle East over the last sort of few decades. Uh, and this podcast isn't obviously to, to discuss military tactics it's to see the parallels but but what i'm trying to bring out here is the difficulty in decision making has become harder and harder and harder because what we're starting to have to do is to work to understand what the target is and what we want to do to it in a world where everything is moving ever so fast and there is so much information available but it's so difficult to actually pull out the information that you need. And the speed of decision-making has only been accelerated by the amount of processing power. And we'll, we'll all be familiar with Moore's law. You know, the processing power of data has meant that the decision speed that we are working at now is so fast that we are having to make decisions that used to be days maybe hours are now being made in minutes or seconds and when you're talking about in the military context you know people's lives um and that putting people in harm's way and delivering you know lethal weapons um that's an incredibly large challenge it, it it's and again reflecting back to the business when i started as a product manager there weren't people who specialized in 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 understanding or accessing that data. And as I was leaving, and, and this was a number of years ago now, large organizations like Adobe were starting to employ business intelligence analysts, people whose purpose was to say, I can help you get the data and organize it. So the first thing that business has done is they've started identifying that there are some specific talents and skills and expertise to get the information. But as always, it's sort of this, this arms race, which is, but of course, the, the business intelligence guys are good at getting data. You need the subject matter experts to say, this is what data I need, or better, yeah. or more, more likely, these are the problems or the questions I want to answer. How can we do this? So you've, you've, it, it, it's this eternal evolution, as you say, and I'm, I would imagine the military has a sort of a similar thing where great we've got business intelligence people well what do you want us to get well i don't yes. know what can yeah. you get so that i think business has definitely done its bit but as always it, I, I think actually it neatly goes back to the what's the problem you're trying to solve because if you can't say absolutely that, yeah and, and of course 
yeah, it can arms race. It can arms race between uh, finding information and hiding information, both in the in the military and in the yeah. you know, the commercial world. You know, hiding your IP, working out what the balance between interoperability sharing for that collective benefit versus hiding and you know microsoft is that classic classic mistake of you know being very very parochial about their software and then watching more uh, collaborative and transparent organizations overtake them because of that diversity advantage that we've talked about yeah you know, the military has a similar problem you know typically we want to hide things from the enemy but actually we want to share them with our partners our allies with people that can collaborate to work on these problems and it's a real challenge making getting that balance right but you've highlighted a really good point, which is you know, making sense of the data is a particular skill set. And we tend to get enamored by the latest wizzy technology. So militaries you know, have this tendency to buy equipment because you can justify it to the taxpayer because it, it is easy, to, it's tangible, it's a piece of equipment. You can understand how it's going to help you. It's really difficult to justify spending money on processing or bandwidth to move information around or and, and i see exactly the same in the commercial world where people want a quick fix they want to buy a piece of software that will do it for them or they want to buy some new sensors that will give them the data because they've been promised all this data and obviously once we have all the data we'll solve all our problems and the reality is this is a complex system of systems where you need to balance the sensors you have to collect data with the processing power you have to move that data around, make sense of it in a way that is relevant to the context of the decisions that you need to make. And it's a constant strategic set of choices about how you set your organization up to be able to manage that. And that leads us on to things we've talked about before in terms of command, the balance of who makes decisions where. And, and I talked about in the uh, counter piracy podcast, the, the idea that the person in front, you know, always calls the shots because they're the person who has the best view. Well, you can take that more theoretically as a conceptual idea that people who are at the front of the organization, people who are doing things day to day, interacting with clients, interacting with suppliers, interacting with the external environment, because of the speed of decision cycles, need to be empowered to make those decisions. And therefore, they need access to the information that perhaps only a few years ago would have been held at a much higher level. It, it, I mean, I, I know this isn't quite the same. Ten years ago, the idea that you would do a town hall and you would effectively show the everyone in your business the slides that you might show to the board or your investors, I think would be insane. It's like, this is privileged information, only senior people... More and more in a number of businesses I've worked in, they have literally shown the numbers to give that context. And so that broader sharing of data has been really important. I am reminded as well, every time we talk about a topic, you know, we think, wow, well, if you think about this, right, it's all good. It's really difficult. I, you know, absolutely. It's, it's good because we'll never run out. But I, I, I think about 10 or 15 minutes ago, I said, I've got a simple question Let's go back. We were going to talk about, we've talked about data, information, and intelligence as factors that affect decision-making. 
yeah. talk, talk to me about those influence factors. I think there's a couple more pieces to that. Sure. So I think we've already highlighted the complexity of just trying to make sense of the situation, trying to understand what is going on, how much you need to then think about what is going to happen in terms of insight and foresight. What we also need to re- recognise is how decisions are made within an organisation and how they are affected by what is happening around you. So I think there are five influence factors on decision-making, the first of which is strategy. We've talked about strategy quite a few times as this, and we, we talked about several definitions, so let me be very clear. I'm talking about strategy in terms of the long-term, whatever that is, goals that we're trying to achieve and the managing the organisation towards those goals. So that idea of you know the compass bearing guiding us to that end destination. Now, we have to recognise that decisions get made day to day by everybody in all different parts of the organisation. They get collectively made, they get individually made, and some of those decisions are made in order to get us towards those strategic goals. Some of those decisions are made because individuals have a choice in front of them and they don't necessarily think about the strategy. And so not all of our decision-making is getting us towards our strategic goals, but we need to try and align our purpose and our decision-making to do that as much as we can. And that leads on to... Well, I was going to say just on that one, well, perhaps, again, this interconnectedness of all things, I think the statement you're making is, if strategy isn't a factor in your decision-making, you're just cranking the handle each day and going, I wonder what will happen. You're reacting to immediate and local factors rather than longer term. And so all Absolutely. those things we talked about, which is everyone better know your strategy. It better be clear. You better have empowered them. It, 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 so simple and yet actually so important that the person in front of you that you don't see and speak to every day is making decisions that will move the needle forward, will get you closer to that guiding point. Sorry, you're going to talk yeah. about talk about next. Well, I, actually, I'm going to I'm going to come back to that because you're you're so right, and we've talked in the past about the need for everybody in the organisation to understand the strategy and it not to just sit in the boardroom. Well, this is why, because when you make the decision about whether to you know stop the machine to do a service or uh, when you're developing the uh, timesheet rotor for next month's employee matrix or, or whatever it is, yes, you're dealing with the day-to-day managing of the organization delivering its day-to-day operations. But if you don't know where you're trying to get to, whether that's, you know, quite a simple, you know, three-year plan as part of your rehag or whether it whether it's the big hairy audacious goal that you talked about uh, last week if you don't know then you can't align your decision making to help the organization and it's um it, it works quite well with my compass analogy it's this idea of magnetism so if you think about what a magnet is all of the individual um uh, molecules within a, a magnet are all aligned in one direction and things that are not magnetic 
are because all of those molecules are aligned in random directions and they cancel each other out. So ferrous materials have been strategically aligned. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get everybody to just tilt slightly towards that end goal. I, I, this is the bit where it sort of gets to the hub of this, which is we, you know, for I don't know how many episodes we've done now, 15 episodes or something crazy like that. And we talk about these concepts, all these different concepts of leadership, of, of strategy, of vision, of three hacks, B hacks, all these kinds of things. It's easy to get caught up in, you know, the language of it. It's easy to get caught up in the philosophy. There's a wonderful talk about it. But I, I can't, the reason why I really wanted to have these conversations with Gareth and others through the years is because these things move the needle. They are yeah. not just a nice thing to, I've got a brilliant idea and that's going to make it all work. Oh, and these other things, sure. This is the bit that makes a difference. If you've got a, if you've got 300 people in your organization, 300 individuals can make amazing things happen. And it's, if you get these things right, they give you disproportionate benefits above and beyond what any one person can do. And maybe, maybe that's another way of saying this as well, which is I think a lot of what we've been talking about is how to scale effect within a business or an organization, because we all like to think, well, you know, I'm listening to this podcast or I'm participating in these conversations. I know what I'm doing. This, this is about me polishing or convincing myself I'm doing the right things. Actually, that's not what this is about. What this is about is saying, how do you take your skills and your ability and intelligence and how do you somehow make 300 of you out there in the world or even better, 300 people better than you out in your organization and these things really really come together so it's not theoretical it's not hypothetical yeah. it's not just chatting over a glass of wine it's really really important we get this right sorry that was a very serious observation but it is about otherwise i think it's it's easy we sound like consultants who are, who are theorizing as opposed to people who are like every day what i do and i know what you do our decisions make a difference. And so I think it's really important. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, we are probably coming to the end of this episode, but why don't we pause and continue with the influence, the rest of the influence factors of decision-making for next week's episode and continue this conversation so we can actually do it justice. You know what? Let's do that because... As I know you do as well, I've scribbled down lots and lots of questions that I think so. I wonder whether actually the first part of the next episode is we finish the influence factors uh, and throw a couple of other things in. I know OODA loop is one we dangled in front of people. But then I think there's a maybe just more of a conversation about what we think this means in real life. You know, how do we know we're making good decisions? How do we even know we're making decisions? You know, that was a point you touched on. Yeah. Um, motivation is goal. So, okay, let's let's round it off here then. Um, and hopefully this is an interesting enough topic that people will come back for the next one. J just before we finish, actually you make a really good point, And that is we've recorded a number of these podcasts now where we touch on I think today you've talked about BHAG and 3HAG, which is from the last episode. We've talked about strategy. 
you know if you are new to the podcast please do go back we've got lots and lots of these episodes and the beauty of them for us is that they all intertwine so if you haven't listened to some of the the back catalog please do go back to the beginning uh and we'd love to have you listen um but for now though what we'll do is we'll we'll finish off today um remember the key thing that well one of the things we did this for and one of the things we love is building that community of people so if you've been listening and you like what you hear go annoy a colleague go tell them to go download an episode and go try it themselves we're also on Twitter, which is our, our, our handle is at Battling with Biz. Biz is uh, with a Z. And finally, we're also there for people who still use email. I think there's people who still use email. We are Battling with Business. That's the full word business at gmail.com. And we would love to have you participate in the conversation. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of. Tell us what you disagree with. Uh, we'd love to, for it to be a bit more of a, even more of a community rather than myself and Gareth staring at each other often over a Zoom connection with a glass of wine. So that's probably as lovely as that is. It is lovely, but we'd like to have more of you. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, to, to so thank you very much for joining us. Uh, part two we'll have next week where we'll we will get through some of the decision making factors <laughs> and we'll talk more. So for now, thanks from me. Thanks very much from me. Cheerio. We'll speak to you later. Bye.